Thanksgiving to you. I see some of my fellow turkeys are stuffed this morning. I don't know about you, but we had our first Thanksgiving at our house in 22 years. Um, we normally go to our in-laws, but as Susan said, it's been a difficult year this year. Uh, but we had a great Thanksgiving, and uh, just grateful to, to have that with family. Had our kids home, and um, it's just been a good time. I, I pray the blessings of Thanksgiving on each and every one of you. And uh, I know for us, it was a little traditions were a little different. I don't. How many of you have a, a Thanksgiving tradition um, that that you observe on a regular basis? Anybody? Let me throw a couple of them out there. Did you watch the Westminster Dog Show, or did you watch football on Thanksgiving? Dog Show, okay, all right. Football on the other side, okay. Pittsburgh, actually, anyway, we'll, we'll get into that later, right? So, so I know we got a lot of different, uh, is it yams or is it sweet potatoes? Is it pumpkin pie or sweet potato pie? Pecan pie, so we just skipped that all together. We had pecan pie with chocolate chips in it this year, so. Uh, that was pretty good. What, what about green bean casserole? Is it a yes or a no? Is, is it made just because it needs to be on the table but nobody eats it? Uh, anybody have any of those types of things? I know in this, in this day and age where things are changing just a little bit, we still have some of these traditions. Even just Thanksgiving itself has become tradition. We, we might actually not really understand the full meaning of Thanksgiving. Uh, and when it was first observed, because we weren't there, and we don't know how difficult that first one was, we talk about it. And the kids make little little turkey finger, you know, puppet things and all that good stuff. But it, but it, there's still traditions that pass on, and we pass traditions on by observing them, uh, even though they don't really have meaning for you. But but what about this? Let me ask you this: Does anybody put pickles on their Thanksgiving table? And I've got a picture up here. Uh, I love pickles myself, but I was reading about this because I was looking for strange Thanksgiving traditions. And, and some people put pickles on their Thanksgiving table, and I was trying to figure out why on earth would you, what, go, what turkey does not go with pickles? I don't know about you, but it doesn't go with pickles. But what I found out was that pickles apparently are good for the digestion. And so they put pickles on the table because they're good for the digestion, and they kind of stop with the bloating and the, and the gas and all that fun stuff that comes with a big Thanksgiving meal, right? And so it kind of makes you want to put pickles on your table, right? And for a couple of you, you're probably thinking, I need to make sure that we put pickles on the table going forward. But it's a weird tradition, but people put that on there uh, for, for whatever reason. And so let me just ask you this morning about some of your family traditions, whether it be Thanksgiving or anything else. Uh, and if you're with us online this morning, I, I encourage you to engage with us on this. And those of you who are with us live, if you want to get on our Facebook page and just say hello to our friends out there and keep us connected and maybe uh, go back and forth. But here's our question this morning that I kind of want to start with uh, about your traditions. Are your traditions more about nostalgia? Are they about superstitions? Are they unifying or are they just something that we've always done? And so you're free to talk amongst yourself for a moment as you think about your Thanksgiving traditions or any other. And I guess the first one and the last one can kind of be the same, but sometimes we just like to go back to another memory that we have and just remember a better time or a different time or an easier time. I know many years ago, uh, our, my father-in-law had passed about 12 years ago, but he used to make this warm potato salad with bacon. And man, I miss Hans, but boy, I'd sure love to have that potato salad. And it just brings me back when I think about that because that guy was a really good cook. Uh, he's a chef, actually. So, so what are your Thanksgiving traditions? Are they, are they unifying? Do you uphold these traditions to keep yourselves together? Or are they just superstitions? Uh, anybody put cabbage in their wallet on uh, New Year's Eve or on New Year's Day? 
You're going to eat black-eyed peas or eat cabbage because you got to have those things on those days. you got to have that, right? I mean, I have no idea where that came from or the purpose behind that, but for whatever reason, it's some sort of tradition. And it's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. Uh, I, I did a wedding last night, and there's something called the Grand March at a wedding. Uh, and I'm not familiar with this, but apparently it's a, a German-Polish sort of thing, and they do this Grand March, and People walk in in a single line, and they go to twos, and then they go to fours, and the next thing you know, they're weaving through, and then it's another line again, and then it's a receiving line like the spirit fingers at the you know kids' softball or baseball game, whatever it is, you know, and all this stuff. And and eventually, what they figure out is this: how you get everybody on the dance floor. Uh, and so it was kind of kind of pretty pretty smart because this is how it all works out. But it's a tradition, and everybody does this. And I didn't know this tradition, and so somebody had to explain it to me last night as I was watching this, and because uh, I wasn't going to participate in something I didn't know, and I was trying to get out of there anyway. But but nonetheless, I'm like, that's pretty cool. That's a neat tradition. But you know, traditions by and large, they're they're actually meaningless if we if we just if we waste our time and our energy not understanding the tradition or the honor by which that tradition brings in. And so most of our traditions, we would hope, would actually bring us back to a nostalgic place or bring us back to, to a time of, of different or would remember. We're actually told in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that we're supposed to teach our children when we lay down, when we get up, when we walk along the road, when the sun rises, when it goes down. We're supposed to honor these traditions, but there's a reason behind that. And so many times, just like our own traditions, we have them wrapped up in just things that we do, but they don't really know what they mean. And we don't honor the tradition or those who's fought for those traditions or created those in our lifetime. And so this morning, I just want to talk about what that word honor means for just a moment. Now, the word honor in and of itself and, and how we honor people, the, the word honor in and of itself means to elevate something higher than you, that, to bring about a, a certain amount of external glory to something that, that elevates it more than you. And when we think about in terms of church or in terms of the Bible, we talk about honoring God. And what that just basically says is that I'm going to be consistent in my actions in honoring God. But it has nothing to do with my emotions or even my connection to God because God is to be honored regardless of what I think about him. He's worthy of our honor. He's worthy of our praise regardless of what I think about him. And so I am to elevate God in all aspects of my life if I'm truly going to honor him. And if I'm honest about that, I don't honor him the way that I should, but I still see him as this, this peripheral God sometimes instead of this personal God for me. And so in order for me to, to detach things, I, I might only honor God whenever it suits me or whenever things are going my way or when God is behaving according to how I want him to behave in my life. But the truth is, is that God is always worthy of honor. He's the only one worthy of honor. And so what it means for us to, to, to really honor something is to act with humility, saying, you know what, I'm going to elevate this person particularly above me in all circumstances, no matter what it costs me, not because it's about me, but it's because about them. It's about who that person is that I'm honoring and elevating. You know, the Congressional Medal of Honor is the highest honor that anyone in the armed services can actually uh, earn, and it's, it's cast upon them for bravery and for valor. And you know that, that, that now, whenever uh, anybody who has a Congressional Medal of Honor, that everyone salutes that person? Even four-star, five-star generals, they all salute that person because they are elevated to a place of honor. And that person usually actually leaves the service after they, they, they're awarded this, this Medal of Honor because they can't move up any higher, and everybody has to salute them for their valor, for their courage, for their service, for what they've done. It's, it's one of the greatest honors that we bestow upon anyone in our armed services. And so it's something to see a, a private or a sergeant have this Congressional Medal of Honor and, and a general snap to and, and salute him. Because that just doesn't happen when a private walks in the room. It's usually when a general walks in the room, all the privates snap to. 
and they're saluting them too. So they've elevated this person, not because of who they are, because of what they've done. And there's no emotional attachment there. They just realize that this person is worthy of being honored. And so this morning, if you have your Bible with you, I want you to turn with me to Malachi chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 6 this morning as we're kind of moving through. And so we're going to talk a little bit about honor this morning and what that means and how this is, this is so important during the time of worship uh, that's going on. I want to remind you that Malachi is the last prophet in the Old Testament. And uh, Malachi and the people of Israel have been free for about 100 years now. Now, by free, what I mean is they're back in Jerusalem. The city's rebuilt. The temple's rebuilt. They're able to worship. Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilt the temple about 100 years or so ago. And so there's been plenty of time for the people of Israel to come back to the, to the rightful worship of God. But they're not doing it. And so back and forth in the book of Malachi, we see this complaint, counter-complaint. And so the people might complain a bit, God might actually throw something back at them and go, oh, that's what your complaint is? Let me give you a complaint about you for a moment. Now, by the way, God has the ability to do that because he's right. We have the inability to do that, but yet we exercise this ability anyway. And we do so basically because we don't think God's doing what we want him to do. And that's what's going on at this time of Malachi is that the people are going back and forth with God. And God is launching some counter complaints against them and saying, let's make sure we're on the same page here. Because I don't think you're seeing what I'm seeing. And I certainly don't think that you believe as I know. And so let's see if we can't get this figured out. So let's start here in Malachi chapter 1 verses 6 and 7. And in this, this passage of Scripture, I just want you to think for a second that God's specifically talking to the priests. Now, you might be thinking for, for a moment, hey, that doesn't apply to me. That only applies to you, John, because you're the priest here. No, no, no. We're in the New Testament era, and I believe in the priesthood of believers, and that's for all of us to understand because as we start to read this, we could very easily insert ourselves into the positions of the priests in this, in this situation in today's day and age. And so let's look at verse 6 and 7. It says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am father, where is my honor? And if I am master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Here's what's going on during this time of a sacrificial system. The people would come to, to the temple, and they would bring with them what's supposed to be the very best, and they would offer it to the priest, and the priest would make the sacrifices on their behalf. And so at this point in, in history and in the history of, of God and his people, the Holy Spirit is not dwelling within the hearts of, of every individual man, but the Holy Spirit is acting on occasion uh, within the hearts and minds of those people. But there's still an active worship of God. And so there were certain sacrifices for certain reasons that would come to the temple. And only the priests who were in right standing with God would be able to offer these sacrifices. Now, it's kind of a strange deal because the priests were supposed to be better than the rest of us. And they were supposed to be good people. And in order for them to make a sacrifice on your behalf, they needed to be in right standing with God. Because if they made a sacrifice on your behalf, not being in right standing with God, how good was your sacrifice? And could you really be forgiven of your sin? Or could things really be taken care of? Does that kind of make sense? We had this go-between between God and his people, and that was the priest. And so that means that the priests were supposed to be living a life that was, that was honoring to God and was respectful. And so who is it that they should be serving? If you said God, that would be the right answer. But the problem is, is that we're starting to see a little bit where the priests are no longer serving God rightfully. They're serving the people, and there's a reason why they're doing this, and it's not a good one. And so God and the priest are having this back and forth. 
Because the priests are saying, oh, no, 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 we're going to make these sacrifices. But God is saying, listen, the, the sacrifices you've been making have not been appropriate. They have not been right. They have not been worthy of me. And so when you take this action of a sacrifice on behalf of the people and you present it to me, you are not doing so in a manner that is worthy of me, the one holy God. And I've had enough of this, and I'm calling you out on this. Now, the priests at this point have kind of gotten to a, 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 a level where they're kind of turning away from God and saying, yeah, but you've let this go on, you've let this go on, and, and this seems to be kind of the cultural norm of the day, and all the people seem to be fine with this. They're, they're okay to bring us a, an unworthy animal and put it on the altar and sacrifice it before you, God. I really don't understand what the problem is. This system seems to be working. If you want to put it in, in today's equivalent, it kind of looks like this. Hey, God, I'm just walking through the motions, and everything seems to be going okay because I feel pretty good about walking through the motions, and as long as I just walk through the motions and everything kind of goes okay, what's the big deal? I mean, I go to church on Sunday, and I listen to KSBJ except during the holidays because it's all Christmas music, and I'm, I'm nice to people, and, and sometimes in December I give year-end gifts to charities and stuff like that. But I go out and I sin like crazy the rest of the time, but I do that in secret, I do it in quiet, or I do it with a group of friends who don't know I'm a Christian. But everything else is okay. I, I really don't understand what the problem is. I mean, when I'm available to help somebody and it doesn't terribly inconvenience me, I, I do so. I mean, God, I, I really don't get it. I don't know what your problem is with, with what I am offering you. And so they're going back and forth between God and the priest. And, and God is saying, you know what, I, I, I kind of need to get your head in the right spot. Because, yes, you're going through the motions, but, but it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense because I have your hands, but I certainly don't have your heart. And, if, and to be perfectly honest with you, I don't fully have your head either because surely you're not thinking straight. And I see there's an element of mercy here on the priest. And, and, and before we start thinking, well, God's trying to laying this Socratic trap for them. He's kind of walking them into this. He has the prerogative to do that, by the way. But, but he's given these priests this opportunity and saying, you have profaned my table. You have said that the offering is this. And the priests are like, what are you talking about? They're speaking from a place of ignorance, but they're also speaking from a place of arrogance. And they're saying, we're the priests. And so what we say goes. And because what we say goes, the people seem to be fine with this. And God is saying, I am the most holy, and what I say goes. And I have laid out for you in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus how the proper way of sacrifice is supposed to be. And you're not honoring that with your heart, but you are honoring it with your hands. You're going through the motions, and this is a problem. Many, many years prior to this, Moses had a brother named Aaron, and Aaron had a couple of sons. And Aaron's sons had this habit of walking into the tent of meeting, the, the dwelling place of God. And God told Aaron, tell your sons, stop doing this. Well, I don't know if he really told them well or not, or if it was more of a suggestion or just what happened. But one day, the, the boys walked in into the presence of God, and they died. And the scripture is really interesting because it just goes on to say Aaron's sons died and Aaron went back to, to serving the Lord with gladness. And it's so interesting that he didn't mourn that or do whatever. And I think part of that is that Aaron on one level said, you know what, I do mourn the loss of my sons, but they were warned not to walk into the presence of God without the right attitude. And the, the, the God that I serve, as much as I love my children, is more important than my own children. Now, that's not just sacrifice. That's a level of honor that God calls for us. And so this banter is going back and forth between God and the priest. But look what he says in verses 8 and 9. 
it says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to, you, to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? This is where God is saying, okay, let's apply your standard to an earthly king, to an earthly governor, to, to people who are in your government right now. Let's say you were to go before them, this, this high magistrate who has power and control and authority and commands the armies and, and, and hands down justice, and say you were to go to them and offer them an unacceptable sacrifice. Do you think they would be favorable to you? Do you think that if you were to go to, uh, let's say that, that we're in a system by which you could bribe someone out of getting a speeding ticket, and you were to say, hey, you know what, officer, um, I realize you're in a position of authority over me, but I've got this half-drank Diet Coke here in my car. Can I give that to you and get out of this ticket today? Wouldn't it be smarter to say, you know what, I just happen to have a couple hundred dollar bills in my pocket. Could I just give that to you today and get out of this ticket? Do you see where the offerings might be a little bit different? And you may actually have a better chance because I doubt that the police officer wants a, 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 a half-drank Diet Coke versus the hundred bucks and hopefully he didn't want the hundred bucks either or else he's corrupt but then again man has always had a history of corruption haven't they and so you just really don't know and so what god is saying to these priests right here is saying listen you would try that same thing with earthly magistrates do you think you'd get away with it well the answer would be no i wouldn't dare try to do that i wouldn't try to influence somebody by giving them the worst of what i have i would want to give them the best of what i have and god said isn't that exactly what you're doing with me right now isn't that what you're allowing to happen? As the priest, you're kind of the, 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 the keepers of the plate, the protectors. And you're allowing the people to bring to you blemished, less than perfect animals. And you're offering them as sacrifices before a holy God who deserves so much more. Why are you doing that? Why are you allowing that to happen? Why are you, are you letting this happen in such an acceptable way? It's kind of what, like what Isaiah said when he said, because the people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And so what God is beginning to kind of pull out of these priests are two things. First and foremost, the priests are far from God. They don't have a right relationship with him on a personal level. And secondly, the demonstration that they have as far as what the relationship to God looks like is pushed back down into the rest of the people and saying, well, if the priests don't have to have a right relationship with God, I don't either. Now, as a pastor, as a shepherd, as someone who's responded to God's call to be in, in watch care and, and over the souls of those that God has given me to watch over, I recognize two things. First and foremost, I have a responsibility to rightly divide the Word of God and to tell you the truth about what God's Word says and to help keep you focused on honoring Him more than anything else. And second of all, I have to make sure that I live my life in such a way that brings glory to God but encourages you to want to do the same thing. Now, don't think for a second I don't realize that a pastor lives in a glass house and people watch his life and they watch what he does. But that's also the calling, not just the consequence of what God has called me to do. But I, I believe this wholly and, and in all situations that where you live, you are of the priesthood of your own house and of your own neighborhood and of all the people that you work with and those around you. And so you too have that same responsibility. 
And so what I've, I've often learned uh, in many situations, as I was talking with someone a, a while back and I read a great article about alcohol and all those other things, and you know, that's always a fun thing to talk about in church, but the guy made a couple of references that I thought were just solid. He goes, first of all, alcohol is a depressant, and God's called me to a life of joy, so I don't consume. I'm like, actually, I can get behind that. That makes logical sense to me. He, he also said this, too. He goes, I know that as a pastor that what I do in moderation, my children will do in excess. And I thought that was just absolutely solid. What I do in moderation, my children will do in excess. Now, I don't consider you my children, but I do consider care for you that as a father may have over his children or a shepherd may have over sheep. And so what I do in moderation, I can only assume you may do in excess. Now, that's not always going to be the case. It's not an absolute. But it does make sense by what you um, accept, you accept. Does that make sense? And this is what the priests were doing. They were making exceptions on behalf of the people, so they were therefore accepting what they were offering and they were bringing to them. And God is saying, we're not going to have this anymore. We can't have you priests allowing the people to bring to you unacceptable offerings and you doing so with a glad heart and then offering these blemished, unworthy animals to a worthy, holy, honorable God. But you're doing so. And you're doing this over and over. And you wouldn't do that with the earthly kings. And you wouldn't do that with the magistrates that are over here now. So why would you do that to God? And how much longer do you think I'm going to continue to accept this? It's a really interesting question that's not being asked because the priests, for whatever reason, have not come to the conclusion that, you know what? At some point, God just may choose not to let this go on anymore. And guess who's going to get it first? Me. Not the people that I'm leading astray, but the leader of the astray. That's why so many times in the American church especially, and, and we kind of love this, we know that where the head goes, the body follows, and there's a great attack upon our spiritual leaders. And spiritual leaders are humans. They make mistakes. We're all men with feet of clay. But if we can get the leader, we can take care of the rest of them. That's true in just about any circumstance. If we can take the leader or get them off course or at least get them neutralized, get them to a place where there's really no threat to the enemy out there, then we can take everybody else out behind them, and we can watch them fall like dominoes one behind the other. And this is what God is saying to the priest and saying, you know what, I have elevated you to a position of authority and responsibility, not so that you can have power over the people, but so that you can honor me and teach them to do the same thing. And you're not doing it. Because what you accept, you accept. And I've had about enough of that. See what he says in verse 10. Oh, that there were among one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And that's a scary statement right there. Just, just think about that for a second. God looks at the priest and goes, there's nothing about you that satisfies me at all. Nothing at all. And so while you may get an attaboys and pats on the back by your people out there for all the things you're doing for them, there is nothing about you that satisfies me at all. I have no pleasure in you. That hurts a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, that, we don't like to think of God being that way, but he is because he has the right to do so, because he has created us for his pleasure. He's created us to worship him, and if we're not going to do that, then what is the purpose that we have? What is the chief end of us? To do what we want to do and feel better about ourselves and spend a godless eternity in a real place called hell? No, that's not it. He continues on to say, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name. 
and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruits, that is, its fruit may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the chief who has a male in his flock and vows it. And yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. What's kind of going on here is that God is calling out the priests and he's saying, I'm kind of getting to the end of this argument. I gave you some outs and you didn't take them. And so let me just get to the point here and tell you what's going on. Is there not one of you that has the integrity to do what he was called to do? I would much rather you shut the doors of of the temple and let the altar go without fire than to, to continue to dishonor and disrespect me and to teach the people to do the same thing. Is there not one of you with the integrity to stand up before the Lord and to all the people and say, I will do what is right, and I will not offer these sacrifices of lame animals or those taken by violence that were strangled or those that are not worthy? Even to a greater point, what the priests have taught the people is this. You have these prized animals, these good sacrifices, and you've made a vow, you've made a promise before God to not give God what is due to him. Now, doesn't that seem a little upside down? Hey, God, thank you for blessing me with all that you've given me. I vow to keep this for myself and never give it back to you. Just think what would have happened had Abraham done the same thing with Isaac. As they were walking up on that mountain, Isaac is saying, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham responds to him, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. And just imagine for a moment as Abraham's tying his son up on the altar and he's placing him upon the logs. He's probably pouring the oil or whatever it is on top of him. And he's getting ready to kill his one and only son. And if you go back and read that, it uses that same language that we see in John 3.16. He's ready to kill his one and only son. And the angel stops him and he says, Abraham, because of your love for God, God has seen your heart has provided an alternative sacrifice for you because you were willing to kill your one and only son. And God is calling out to the priest and saying, is there not one of you who's willing to do what is right? Is there not one of you who's willing to say no more of these lame sacrifices? We only want to give to God what is worthy of him, the very best that we have. But instead, you've taught the people to withhold what God has given them for themselves as if they deserve it, because after all, only God can judge me, right? We have a great sense of entitlement that's found right here in Malachi, and it's being pushed down from the priest to the people, and we're experiencing that a lot today. It's, it's funny when you look back to the story of Cain and Abel, and you can see that in Genesis, and then you go back to, to, to Hebrews, and you see where we kind of get the end of the story. Because when one brought in just some, some bad grapes or whatever it was, the other one brought the best of what he had. And in Hebrews, we see that it was attributed to Abel as honoring to God because he gave God the very best he had. And God saw not just the sacrifice, he saw Abel's heart. And this is where God is looking into the heart of the priest and he's saying, listen, you're leading the people astray as well. But here's why they were doing it. You see, what would happen is that the priests were often compensated, and this is how they would live, because they were allowed to take part of the sacrifices uh, for themselves. And so when someone would bring in a lamb, they would sacrifice most of that lamb, but they would also be allowed to eat some of that lamb. And that's how they would eat and provide for their family, or whether it be a grain offering or a wine offering or anything else. 
And so what the priest figured out was, you know what? I can get a whole lot more by a lesser sacrifice. They'll bring more to me. And so I'll just make up for this unworthy sacrifice to God. And so instead of one perfect, spotless, blameless lamb that God is worthy of, I'll just kill ten that are not as good, and I'll get a little bit more to eat, and everybody will feel better about this, and God will be honored because we're, we're doing more sacrifices. Because, you know, when you just do more, that's always better than just doing right, isn't it? I can just do more of a little bit of good than just doing what is right and what is honorable. And God's saying, look how messed up this is. Look how confused you seem to be. And you priests are getting fat, and you're getting drunk, and you're getting all this extra stuff because you've allowed for a lower level of acceptability to, an, to honoring God. And he goes, I've had enough of that. I'd rather you just starve to death, shut down the temple, stop offering these terrible sacrifices. Because look, the people earlier in the first five verses of, of Malachi were complaining that they were not this prosperous nation that God said they would be in the promised land. And so why would they be if they're going to treat God this way? Why would they expect God to do for them what they're not giving to God, what he's worthy of, when they're not elevating to a place of honor that they should be doing so? And so they were, instead of giving their first fruits, they were giving what was leftovers. And let's face it, here it is, Thanksgiving. We all know what leftovers really happen, right? Nobody really likes leftovers, especially after a couple of days. And this is what these people were giving to God, were their leftovers. Now, what about you? Are you giving God your leftovers? Are you getting what, giving him what he deserves? Are you making it a relationship thing when, when God does what I want him to do, then I'll give to him? But it really ought to be the other way around. When God is who he is and I see him for who he truly is, then I will honor him the way that I'm supposed to honor him. I will respect him the way I'm supposed to respect him. And I'm not expecting an outcome other than what God has already shown me in his character. He loves me unconditionally. And so I might bring an unacceptable sacrifice, but it really has nothing to do with that sacrifice. It has everything to do with my heart and how I honor him. And so the people have gotten to this place where this is this ongoing tradition. And the priests have had multiple generations where they've taught the priest under them or their son or whoever to, to take over the priesthood to do the exact same thing. And they wonder, why isn't God blessing us? It's because you refuse the arts and you're only going through the motions. You're giving him lip service and hand service and you need to give him more. Friends, the king is coming, and we must learn to honor him. And if you, if you hear nothing else from me this morning, I want you to kind of hone in on that because I want you to start thinking about the things that you present to God and how you present them. We don't live under a sacrificial system anymore. God really doesn't ask us to make a lot of sacrifices anymore, not in the way that they used to do so regarding their livelihood. In fact, the, the reason for the tithe was so that not that we could give God 10% back so that we could understand how to live on the 90% that God already provided for us. And it had nothing to do with the amount. It had everything to do with the heart of the giver. Everything to do with that. And so how can we do that? How can we honor God? Well, I want to give you a couple of ways that I think we can do that this morning. Now we can continue to do that, especially during this holiday season. And as we get ready for the return of the king to come, as we prepare for the birth of Jesus in a few weeks, but as we get ready for him when he comes back, and he, he claims the throne that only he is worthy of. So first of all, I think we need to understand how we honor God. To know him is to love him. I, I, I noticed a minute ago in that song we sang a minute ago that, that, that to know him is to love him, right? And you've all heard that country song too, right? Uh, I, I won't sing it for you, but, but you know that. To know me is to love me. Anyway, uh, some of you remember that from Hee Haw, I think it was, wasn't it? May have been. But to know him is to love him. Now, now we see in Matthew chapter 9 
that Jesus actually is quoting Hosea, which was another Old Testament prophet. And he said to the Pharisees that day in Matthew chapter 9, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. You can burn up as many uh, lame animals as you want. You can bring all the perfect animals that you want to me. But if you don't know me and love me and honor me with your heart, I really don't care what's going on on that altar. Yeah, he cares. He just doesn't really going to pay attention to that, too. He's going to receive that offering but by, by who gave it and how they gave it, not by what's actually on there. That's why in the sacrificial system, if you were to go back and look at, at, at Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you would see that different people had different opportunities for what they could give because some people just have enough to give a lamb, and so they would be able to give something else. So to know God is to love him, and that's how we honor him. The second thing we can do is to, to love him is to obey him. Nobody ever said, I love you, but I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. Because that's not really consistent with, our words aren't consistent with our action there. And so we can look back to Luke chapter 10, verses 36 and 37. It says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man? This is the story of the Good Samaritan uh, who fell in the hands of robbers. And the expert of the law said, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now, if you know the story of the Good Samaritan, he's saying you can have knowledge of what you're supposed to do. But until you have activity of actually doing that, you're not in line with it. And this was exactly what was going on with the priest. You know the right thing to do. Would you please just do it? Now, by a show of hands this morning, I'd love to know how many of you have integrity issues. I'm just kidding, right? Don't, don't, don't raise your hand because we'd all be raising them both, I think, maybe even jumping up and down. Because at some point what happens is that, that our integrity comes into question because the knowledge of what we know to do, is right to do, always comes down to where the rubber meets the road and going actually doing that. It's one of the lessons my dad taught me a long time ago. Son, you'll probably never have difficulty knowing the right thing to do, but you will be challenged in actually doing that. And, and I can't say that that's a universal truth all the time, but I, can, I know there are times when I wrestle with that in my own life. I can hear my dad talking to me. I can hear him saying that. I can almost see him shaking his head going, I know what you're thinking. Don't do it. Don't do it. This is exactly what God was saying to the priest. This is exactly what Jesus was saying to all those that he was teaching about the Good Samaritan. All those other people that passed by this man, they knew the right thing to do, but they chose not to do it, and their integrity was in question. And God says, I want you to make sure that you go and do likewise. And so if you really love God, you will obey his commandments. You will do what he asks you to do. And it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that it's going to be convenient. It doesn't mean it's not going to cost you because it probably will cost you. It probably will be terribly inconvenient because it will be against the things of this world that we're accustomed to. But if we love him, we will indeed obey him. David Hall makes this quote up here, and I thought this was really great, and it's applicable to the, to the Good Samaritan story and even to the priest as they were ministering to the people. He says, whether one honors God is a litmus test that amazingly also predicts how one treats his neighbor. You know, when you think about this Thanksgiving season and we think about this time where people are not with family or, or they're traveling or whatever, we think about any time by which we get into this, this season of giving and caring it shouldn't just be a season for us as, as Christ followers. It should be something that we always do. It's not natural to us, but if we allow God to take over and do what he wants us to do, then what we can see is just what David Hall said, is that how we treat our neighbor is a reflection of how we love and honor God. For the priest of that day, it was actually pretty terrible when you really start to think about it and break it down. What they were treating their neighbors, what they were treating the people they were supposed to be ministering to and representing before God, they were treating them terribly. And it showed not only a, a, a discontent for God, but it, it showed almost a loathing for the people. 
because it, it became about neither of the two ends. It became only about them and them alone. And I know sometimes we say it's easier to give than to receive, but it doesn't really matter if your gift that you give is not worthy of honor to the one who deserves honor. You can give all you want. It doesn't really matter. You may as well just receive, and that's what the priests were doing. And so a litmus test for us about how we love God and obey him is how we treat others. And this is why Jesus would boil all those rules back down to those two, love God and love people. And if you take care of one, the other one takes care of itself. There's a lot of people that like people. They don't love people the way God wants us to love them too. And the third thing I want you to see this morning is that in order for us to obey him, we serve him. Now, sometimes it just gets a little sticky because people don't fully understand what that means. Well, I serve God. I do this. I, 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 I tow the trailer. I set up the children's areas. I stuff bags. I do all these other things. Man, it's great. Those things are necessary. But I have found over and over in any measure of service, whether it be in the church or any place else, that the people who do things because they care about others, because they care about accomplishing the mission, they will often do things that they don't like, that they don't want to do, and they don't feel fully equipped to do, but they'll do them because they need to be done and because they're right. Wouldn't it be different if the attitude of our hearts would change in such a way that it didn't really matter what needed to be done, it only mattered about who it was being done for? That was what was going on with the priests. They were going through the motions, and they were missing the point that they actually weren't supposed to be going through the motions. They were supposed to be honoring God. And so John 12, 26 says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. When we serve Christ, we do the things that we may not want to do, not because we like them or dislike them or don't agree with them or don't even understand them. It's because Jesus asked us to. And it's not something that we normally like to, 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 to really just jump into. It's kind of like when we tell our kids, because I said so, there's a whole lot more behind that statement, kids, than mom and dad saying, because I said so. Because behind that statement of any good parent, because I've said so means because I love you, because I provide for you, because I protect for you, because I want the very best for you. And if you can't learn to do what I ask you to do, I would never put you in a place that would harm you physically, spiritually, or emotionally. A good parent would never do that. That doesn't mean I won't ask you to do hard things. And when I ask you to do hard things, I need to know that you'll do it. I don't just need to establish that trust with you. I need to know that you trust me to know that I love you because I said so. It's not just this mean authoritarian thing. God's saying, this is the way I said for it to be. Bring to me the very best of what you had. Don't bring me the leftovers. And you may not understand that, but that shouldn't stop you from doing what God wants you to do. Because you can question God all day long, but at the end of the day, he's the only one worthy of respect and authority. And we should bring him our very best, no matter what that is. And it's the very best of our hearts. Finally, this morning, I want to just encourage you that to serve him is indeed to honor him. Romans chapter 12, verse 10 and 11 tells us, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo her in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. I love serving. I love that we do things. I, 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 I love when our church is active and out trying to show people the love of God and, and the various things that we do. I'm one of those people who always believes we'll never be able to do enough of that and we can always do more. And I'm rarely actually satisfied with that. And there's a lot of different things that kind of drive that. But I think we can always do more because the truth is we, we really can it's just a matter of whether we want to or not. But none of that actually matters if what we do is not in proclamation of the king whom we serve. 
We could do all kinds of great acts of service, all kinds of nice things. We could send money and clothing and food and everything else, all those things. But if we don't get to the reality of the King that is coming, to the person of Jesus who died on the cross for all of mankind, who will overwhelm sickness and hunger and pain and fear and anxiety, if we don't get to that point, all we're really doing is exchanging one hell for another. We're taking care of a temporary thing on this earth that has no value in eternity if we don't get to Jesus. And so to truly serve God, we must serve him in word and deed, as James says. We must serve him with a willing heart. We must serve him honorably. And when we honor him, he will, in fact, honor us. Earlier I told you the definition of honor is that we elevate someone above ourselves. We give them an external recognition. And God is saying that if you will serve me, if you will love me, if you will obey me, then I will honor you. And just think for a second what it means for the creator of all things to honor us, to elevate us. It just simply says that one day we'll stand before God and all of our actions will be judged. And when our actions are judged, we will be asked certain questions and we'll have to answer for those and and everything that we've ever done. But God will say to us, come on in, you're one of mine. He will honor us because our name will be written in the book of life, not for all the nice things we did, but for the king whom we served with all of our heart. The priests were not doing what they were supposed to be doing. They're not unlike any other priest that's ever done anything anywhere, to be perfectly honest with you. They were men, and they were swayed by a lot of things and made a lot of bad decisions, as we're all prone to do. The people followed them. And what I find remarkable about this day and age that we live in, especially in the individuality of the American culture, where the American person believes in themselves and what they can do and what they're allowed to do and what their rights and freedoms are, it makes it quite challenging for a priest to speak into the lives of of an American culture, just to be perfectly honest with you. Many times that's received with, oh, he's just trying to guilt me or he's just blaming me or he's just calling me out. I can understand where that would come from, and I pray I never do that to any of you, but I pray that the words of God convict your heart when it is rightfully divided and put out there, and it calls you to a place to say that you need to be honoring God with your very best and stop giving him your leftovers. That's not just for God's sake. It's also for your sake, too, and while we may not want to think that way, God is saying, I want to honor you, but you've not given me anything worthy of honoring you. Whereas God has said, I am worthy of being honored. I created you with my spoken word. I gave you my one and only son to forgive you of your sins. And I ask you to make one sacrifice here or one sacrifice there. It's nothing compared to the sacrifice I made for you. Because I love you. Because I want what's best for you. Because I want to honor you with more than just my words. I want to honor you with my heart. And that's what God's calling us to do. Friends, the king is coming. We're going to celebrate his birth in a few weeks. But he's coming back. And when he comes back, he is worthy of all all honor and praise and glory that only he, only he is worthy of. And we need to learn to honor him. I do think that at the sound of his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But I actually think that that will be because that will be the only response to a righteous, holy God standing in front of us. That for many people, that will not be a willing response to them. It uh, It will be just the reaction that humanity has to the holiness of God. But for some of us, when the Lamb appears, we will praise Him and we will drop to our knees and we will honor Him because He do that honor for us. Because of who He is, not what He's done. And He's done a lot for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Jesus died on the cross for us. We thank You, Lord, that even though...
the priest of old and even the priest of today don't always do the